The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'm going to begin by reading Exodus chapter 4, verse 1 through 17, and then give a little bit of a review, and then we'll uh, get a little into a little more detail. Exodus 4, verses 1 through 17. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me, and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. Now, so Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the, from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes, it bl makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, O Lord, Please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. So we're in the middle of the account in which God is calling Moses uh, to go to Egypt and to be his instrument to free the Israelites from Egypt and bring them into the promised land, thus fulfilling the covenant that God had made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This is really the first account of a call to ministry. This is really a call to ministry. It's Moses' call into, into God's service. And the first time ever that this kind of call has occurred. And so it's, it's uh, got all kinds of symbolism and it's a paradigm in so many ways for the calling that God gives to each one of us in a different way. Having said that, however, we have to recognize the complete uh, uniqueness of this moment in redemptive history. We are not Moses. And not in any way undercutting anybody that uh, wrote a book like, for example, Experiencing God, and we're all coming to our own burning bush. We do not have a burning bush to come to, but we still have the same God who calls to us and challenges us to do great things. 
And he's told us what we are to do. He's given us the Great Commission and made it timeless right to the end of the end of the world when he says, surely I am with you even to the end of the age. And so that's our lasting command. And that's what we are to be doing. We don't need another burning bush encounter. But yet, having said that, we can look and learn about principles even from this unique moment in redemptive history. So I'm always wanting to keep that intention. God is speaking to us in the account of the burning bush. Jesus said so. Have you not read what God said to you in the account of the burning bush? So he speaks to us from this account. But yet Moses was unique, and this was a unique moment in redemptive history. Now, we see that Moses was not fully prepared for this moment, was he? He's had 80 years of life on earth, and it broke down into two different parts, very different from one another. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years wandering in the desert, 40 years in luxury and in power, with great prospects in Pharaoh's court. So 40 years of the best that this world had to offer. And then 40 years of the hardest and harshest that this world had to offer, wandering in a desert. And the strange thing is, neither one of those adequately prepared him for meeting God. Isn't that incredible? Neither the luxury nor the deprivation. And so I don't want us to elevate the monastic life too highly either, as though if we went out and wandered in the desert, or we were fasting or lived in a harsh area, that that would do anything whatsoever for us if God's grace did not use it to do so. He's not ready to meet God, is he? And he shows that by repeated demurrals, repeated refusals to do what God has called him to do. Now, we've already seen in chapter 3 how God appears to him in the flames of the burning bush. He says, take off your sandals or shoes for the place where you're standing is holy ground. He establishes, therefore, his holiness right from the beginning, both visually in the burning, burning bush, for our God is a consuming fire, and the fire uh, comes to us as a symbol of the holiness of God, but also in the clear statement, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. So the sense of the holiness of God, and Moses trembles with fear. He's afraid to look at God and he hides his face. And then he calls him to his covenant. He reminds him that he has made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I have been concerned about my people. I see what the, what the Egyptians are doing to them in Egypt, and I have come now to bring them out. And so in, in Exodus 3, verse 10, he says, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he says in verse 10, so now go, I am sending you. So we see that incredible, and we talked about this last time, mystery. I am coming down to rescue my people, so now go, I am sending you. Now, how do those two fit together? The sovereignty of God and human responsibility. The sovereignty of God and human activity. We see the two coming together. I am coming down, and I'm doing it through you. So go, and I will be with you. That's what he says. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people uh, the Israelites out of Egypt. So that's the preparation. Now we start to get Moses' response. How did Moses answer this call? Here am I, Lord, send me. Is this a great moment in history in which he stands for us and just represents us so well? Or does he do everything he can to get out of this call? And we know it's the second. He does five things as I go through and I see the five things he says. Five times he tries to get out of this call. Five times. First thing is with a self-focus. We've already seen that in verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I? This is chapter 3, verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, you've listened to me twice on this. What is the answer? What is the answer to that question? Who am I that I should go? It doesn't matter who you are. You are not the point. Now, we know that if it had mattered who he was, God would have built up his self-esteem at that moment. 
He would have said, you don't know all that you are, Moses. If only you would understand what I've put in you. He doesn't do that at all. He says, I will be with you. Many times I, th I think of it in terms of there's a, a scale, you know, and then there are people and each of the people weigh a different amount. Some are heavyweights and some are lightweights in the world, you know. And then there's God who's the 8 million ton weight, right? Infinite, really, but I'm just trying to. And then whatever side he's on, that's all that matters. So it really doesn't matter who you are. I'm on this side, he's on that side. It doesn't make a difference. What matters is what is God doing here? What is his will in this matter? And so he says, I will be with you. That's God's answer, verse 12. So the first thing is self-focus. And that's the first thing that God has to do in our lives as well. Who am I that I should go to Montenegro? Who am I that I should go across the street to witness to my neighbor? The answer is always going to be the same. It doesn't matter who you are. I've commanded you to do this, and I will be with you. So go. Find out what happens. Just go in the power that I give you, and we'll see what happens. Witness for me. So that's what he says, I'll be with you. The second is anxiety in verse 13 of chapter 3. He says, suppose I go to the Israelites and they say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to, to you, and they ask me, what is his name, then what shall I tell them? Now you might say, where is the anxiety in this? And I already defended this, and this is a valid question. What is your name? And that's a very important thing. But I still think as we connect the dots of his interaction with God, he's not saying, okay, I'm anxious the other four times, but this one time I just have a theological question. I think the real issue is he's doing what he can to get out of this call. And so whenever you start saying, suppose this, what is that? Well, it's your active imagination at work in a negative way. What is imagination at work in a negative way? It's called anxiety, is it not? How many of those things you're anxious about that you imagine might happen to you actually occur? Not, but very few of them. Enough to keep you going in anxiety, right? That's just enough to keep you going. <clears throat> but anxiety is just imagination gone awry. And so he says, suppose I get there and this is going to happen. And so he's anxious. And then God responds vigorously to this one. <clears throat> he tells him his name, self-revelation, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am, and this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is We've spent a great deal of time in this, and I'm not going to spend any more time, but this is God's revelation. It is his covenant name. And then he connects to historic covenant faithfulness, verse 15 and 16. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the God, uh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. So he's tracing back to uh, Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to his historic connection to the Jewish people, his historic covenant faithfulness. And then he gives him a command. He, he tells him what to do, a strategy, if you would. He says, when you get there, assemble the elders. Get them together. Assemble them and say to them, <clears throat> the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me and said, I have watched over you, and I've seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he gives him, uh, them a, uh, him a clear uh, set of marching orders. When you get there, gather the elders together. This is something you can do. And this is the way God works. He gives us specific instructions. Go and do this and uh, take it from there. And he says, the elders will listen to you. Now that's very important when we get into chapter 4. He says and tells them very plainly, the elders will listen to you. Now stop there. How does God know that? Because God knows all things. Does he even know future decisions of human beings? 
Oh, absolutely. Of course he does. And he says the elders will listen to you. But Pharaoh will not. And so we have the balance between the elders who will listen and they will be excited to see you and they'll be glad and they will worship and all of that will happen. But then Pharaoh will not until I compel him with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So now we get to the third response and this is the context of chapter 4, uh, verse 1. And what is the third response? Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Now, I think we've already covered that. Haven't we just covered that? The elders will listen to you. And so, in effect, this is nothing more or less, nothing less than rank unbelief. That's all it is. God has already told them they will listen. What if they do not listen? Then what? Well, then don't go because I'm not God. And I don't know the future. And you're going to get killed in Egypt. Don't go. But I am God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who created heaven and earth. And I just told you the elders would listen to you. So it's rank unbelief. But God is gentle with them. And what does he do? He gives them three signs. He gives them the signs. And this is our God. Our God is gentle. The bruised reed he does not break. And the smoldering wick he does not snuff out until he leads justice to victory. He is very gentle with unbelief. Patient with it. And so he gives them signs and wonders. And we're going to look more carefully at these tonight. The first sign that he gives them is the rod turned into the serpent and back again. This significance is the conquest and domination of Satan and his kingdom by the power of God. I believe that's what it signifies. We'll talk more about it in a moment. The second is the leprous hand stuck inside the cloak and pulled out. I think this signifies the corruption of Moses' heart, the corruption of human heart, and the ability that God has even to use a corrupt man like Moses to sanctify him and use him for his holy service. And thirdly, the river uh, into uh, the river water turning into blood. I think this is a symbol of God's judgment on any who will not listen to him. So we're going to look at these three signs. The fourth response we see in verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. We're just doing an overview now of this section. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, and I like this, nor since you have spoken to your servant, a few moments ago when I first began this encounter. Uh, I am slow of speech and tongue. You know, you've, you, you do all these great things and already by this time his hand had turned uh, leprous and back again. The sign had been displayed and said, I noticed that you left me with this speech impediment. Okay, For, uh, you know, you haven't healed that yet. So if you wanted to look after that, I would certainly appreciate it. Uh, or even better, don't send me. <laughs> Find somebody else. But either way, I've got this speech impediment. God's response is his sovereign purpose and assistance. And I'll tell you what, there is more theology in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 4 than most of us can handle. It's hard to live out an understanding of the sovereignty of God in verse 11 and 12. The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is this the God you worship? It's the God of the Bible. It is the God of the Bible who makes people blind and mute and deaf. So these verses say, Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and teach you what to say. Moses says, send somebody else because I have a speech impediment. In effect, he says, number one, I gave you your speech impediment. Isn't that what he's saying here? Who gave that problem to you? It was me. And number two, I have not, I believe, I'll put it this way. 
I have not chosen you for this because of your eloquence. For man's eloquence amounts to nothing. As a matter of fact, if we know anything about the Lord, I have chosen you specifically because of your speech impediment, that you would not boast against me that it was your eloquence that won the day. That seems to be God's way, isn't it? It's because of your speech impediment that I chose you, not in spite of it. I will use it to, your, to, to my glory so that all will know that it is only by my power that I have led uh, Israel out of Egypt. And then the fifth stage is, Lord, send somebody else. Now, what would you call that? After all we've been through, what would you call that? Rebellion. I mean, is it not? If we had unbelief in verse 1, is this not simply a matter of rebellion? He, he actually says it politely. He says, send whom you will. <laughs> oh, Lord, please send, send the one that you choose other than me. Well, he's made his choice, but he doesn't want to go. And at that point, when, it, when we come face to face with the rebellion, uh, God's anger flares against uh, Moses. But he doesn't destroy him, and he doesn't reject him. He just continues to stoop to his weakness, mighty as he is, and says, isn't Aaron coming? And again, we see the sovereignty of God in that. God works at both ends of the pipeline, okay? Because in order for Aaron to meet Moses at the mountain at the right time, he's already got to be in motion. It's just the way it is in space and time. And so he's already moving, he's already coming. God's already anticipated this whole thing. Aaron's on his way, he will see you, he'll be happy to see you, and he will be the answer, and I'll work with the both of you. So God works at both ends of the line. He, he, he rules over all things. That's an overview of what we're looking at here. And he says, oh, by the way, bring that, that staff with you. You left it on the ground. Bring it with you so that you can do miracles. And that's the overall account. So we've taken a big picture look at it. Basically, it's Moses doing everything he can to get out of this call. And God very patiently, lovingly giving him everything he needs to finish his call. So also it is with us. God is patient with us and gives us everything that we need uh, to do our ministry. Let's look back in more uh, careful uh, detail. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? This unbelief God conquers by means of the signs and wonders. Now, if you look throughout the scriptures, everywhere that signs and wonders uh, are, they're connected to overcoming unbelief. They're connected to bringing people to repentance. It's evidence of God's kindness in dealing with unrepentant and unbelieving people to bring them to repentance. Jesus, in John chapter 5, says, Believe because of my works. So he puts his miracles forward as evidence of his deity and of his call. Because of the miracles. The Apostle Paul does the same thing in uh, Romans 15. He says, by the power of signs and wonders, I have preached the gospel. And so wherever he went, he preached the gospel by the power of signs and wonders. It gained him a hearing and a sense of authority that God was with him. So also in the account of Gideon. You remember the miracles that God did for Gideon to give him a sense of power and to overcome his unbelief so that he would be able to, to serve him. And so it is again and again. And so it is here. The first sign we see in verses 2 through 5, the staff into the serpent. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? Now, much has been made about that, by the way. It's just like the boy with the five loaves and the two fish and how God can take what's in your hand and uh, do incredible things with it. And I don't deny that at all. I think that's a good point. Uh, but I also believe that God sovereignly saw to it that it would be a staff in his hand. All of these things, see, God puts the staff in your hand and then says, what is that in your hand? The very thing that I gave you, the staff. <clears throat> And he answered a staff, and then the Lord said, throw it on the ground. Now, the miracle works in basically three stages. You've got just a regular staff, just a wooden staff, and he's had it all along. Probably knows that staff very well. 
may even have some markings on it, marking off days, who knows. But it's his staff and he'd be able to identify it. So he starts out with a staff, then he throws it on the ground under the command of the Lord and it becomes a serpent and he runs away from it. I thought I knew that staff, but I guess I didn't. He runs away from the serpent and then the Lord commands him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail and suddenly it becomes a staff again. Now, A.W. Pink, whose commentary I'm following, perhaps even plagiarizing, I'll tell you what, it's a great commentary. You want to read it. At this point here, he gives a, seven, a seven-fold lesson on the, on the uh, snake and the serpent. It gets a little bit um, like origin. It's hard to explain, but uh, the spiritualizing here is incredible. And you have to read it. I'm only going to give you four out of the seven. The other ones I just can't buy. Okay, but he goes into great depth about the st staff into the serpent. But I believe that there is some symbolism here. The serpent throughout the Bible uh, represents the devil. And I think it's important for us to see the significance here also of the, of the rod. First of all, there's a practical side to this miracle. The rod represents, even physically stands for, support. We lean on a staff and it supports us if it's a solid staff. The rod in the hand, as you're holding it, represents it all as well. You have a clear and visible means of support. It represents, therefore, God's support of Moses. As he has the staff in his hand, he has what he needs. But as he casts the staff away, that's when he gets into problems. It says in Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. So it's a sense of comfort when you're close to God, a sense of his protection. The lesson is supporting on, is supporting Moses as God. Protecting him is the grace of God. Leaning on God, he will succeed. As he steps away from God, as he, as he moves away from him, everything will go haywire. The power of Satan will become greater than he can handle. Only in relying clearly on God as his visible means of support will he survive. Very much like Peter walking on the water. Only as his eyes are focused on Christ uh, would he survive. And, and in the same way, at that moment when the rod uh, thrown away from Moses became a serpent, Moses ran away in terror. So also would God terrify Moses before Pharaoh if he didn't remain faithful to his commands, if he didn't stay close to God, just as Peter was terrified of the wind and the waves and thought that he would drown. The second lesson has to do with government. The rod represents, in many places in Scripture, governmental authority and power. It says in Psalm 2, verse 9, you will rule them with an iron scepter, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. The rod, it's the exact same Hebrew word, by the way, represents governmental authority and power. The casting down of the rod, therefore, represents God's casting down of the Revelation 13 beast of government. Remember I've told you before that Romans 13 and Revelation 13 represents human government at its worst and its best. Romans 13, human government is God's servant to do you good. Revelation 13, it is the beast from out of the sea to destroy you and trample you. And so there are times that human government becomes the beast from out of the sea. Egypt was such a case, no question about it. And so the rod becoming a serpent represents something good, Romans 13 government, becoming demonic, uh, even willing to kill boy babies and slaughter an entire race of people, a demonic government. And Moses, with the power of God, reaches and grabs it by the tail and turns it back into a rod again when he takes his people out of that nation and sets up a godly government under the laws of God. Thirdly, evidential. This is sign 
that the people should follow Moses. It's really that practical. Remember why he asked for this. He said, you know, what if they don't believe me or say that you didn't send me? Then what? He gives them the sign to answer the question. So there's symbolic and spiritual side, but there's a very practical side too. When he does this miracle, the people will listen and they will believe. And so this becomes evidence that God is with Moses, that he is powerful and strong. And then there's evangelical. Moses fled before the serpent to signify also the powerlessness of a single sinner before the devil. We have no power. We are, just like Israel in Egypt, enslaved to sin. And we would flee before him were God not our redeemer, if he didn't stand up and protect us. And so Moses was God's mediator, and only with his authority could he stand before the power of the devil and win the victory. Ultimately, I believe this is a symbol of Christ himself as our mediator. First Timothy 2.5, it says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The other ones you can read yourself and see if you like them better than I did. I don't. Um, but it uh, has to do with the history, the dispensations of Israel and their future and all that. So I'm not sure how much more we can get out of a rod turning into a snake. All right, But at least this much is the case. It shows clearly the power of God working on Moses that they would believe in him. The second sign we see in chapter 4, verse 6 through 9. <clears throat> then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. So he gives them the second sign. Now I think what this has to do, and I really I believe that the leprosy at this point represents human corruption. It represents sinfulness. The very same thing that happened, as you remember, to Miriam when she questioned Moses' authority. She turned a leprous like snow. And also King Uzziah, I think it was, who arrogantly burned incense before the Lord, and so he turned leprous and was excluded. And so the leprosy becomes, I think, a symbol of human sinfulness and corruption. Therefore, when Jesus comes and can touch a leper and not be defiled himself, but instantly, like light rushing into a dark room, so the healing rushes from the Holy Christ onto the leper's hand. He never really touched a leper. They were healed the instant that he touched them. At that moment, they were healed and cleansed. Shows Jesus' complete power over human corruption and sin. But, but it, as you take your hand and put it in to your cloak, it's right near your heart, the heart representing the core of your being. And so in effect, he's saying, close to yourself is corruption, wickedness, and sin. We're seeing some evidence of that even in chapter 3 and 4. How different from the archangels is Moses here? How different from them as he tries to evade, as he tries to disobey and get out of his commission? And so your heart is corrupt. In Jeremiah 17:9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Your heart is sick, in effect. You say, now wait a minute. <clears throat> Moses is one of the great men of God, one of the great heroes of the Bible. Exactly. In chapter 4 of Romans, it talks about Abraham, also one of the great men of God, and it says of, uh, concerning his case that God justifies the wicked. It calls Abraham wicked in Romans 4. You say, well, if Abraham and Moses are wicked and ungodly, what are we? Wicked and ungodly also. We need a savior. We're not, you know, basically okay and need basically some help. We're basically dead in our transgressions and sins. Our hearts are basically corrupt and deceitful above all things. And so the hand comes out and it's disgusting to look at. 
And he said, now put it back in. And he takes it back out and it's restored, just like the rest of his flesh. God is able to cure the heart. Who can understand the heart? God can. Who can cure the heart? God can. And so he can take a sinner like Moses and use him. The third sign is water into blood. And by the way, one last point about this. I'm going to take it from uh, Acts chapter 3. Remember when Peter and John went to pray? They met a lame man on the way. You remember that song? And they did a miracle. And the people came running when the miracle was done. And it was an opportunity to preach. Do you remember what Peter said when they came? He said, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Which is an amazing statement. <laughs> why does this surprise you that we healed a lame man, that everyone knows is lame? And then he said this, or why do you stare at us? as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk. Don't stare at Moses. When he puts his hand near his heart, it turns out leprous. It's not through Moses' power or godliness that he does all of these miracles, but through only God's sovereignty and goodness. He doesn't use perfect people. He uses sinful people to do great things. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness You've made this man walk. The third sign is water into blood. I think the significance here is God's judgment on all who reject him. I think the water signifies life. And certainly it did to Egyptians, right? If the Nile goes bad, what happens? Death. No question about it. They live in a desert. Have you ever, have you ever seen a satellite photo of Egypt? All right, right along the Nile, it's green. Everywhere else, it's brown. What does that tell you? Water equals life. Where there is water, there is life. Where there is no water, there's no life. And so when the water turns into blood, it's a sign of judgment. It's life into death. It's life corrupted and turned into death. And so it's a signif uh, it signifies judgment on God. Now, that water signifies life is clear. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, out of him will flow rivers of living water. And it says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 and 2, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal crystal clear water flowing right down the middle of the city. And on either side of the river were, uh, was the tree of life. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. It's a picture of health and life right there flowing down the center of the city. But water into blood signifies death. We'll see this in Exodus 7, 20 and 21. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the, in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. It's judgment. It's death. So also in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verse 3 through 6, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Now stop and think about that. Think about a future day in which every living thing in the sea will die. How many living things are there? Think of the plankton. Think of the porpoises and the whales. Think of all the fish, all of it dead. And so when the sea turns into blood, that's death. It's judgment from God. There's one other place, by the way, that I find both water and blood. Do you know where it is? It's at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it flows out of the side of Jesus Christ. When the Roman soldier put his spear into the side of Christ, out of his, the side flowed water, that's life, and blood, that's judgment, all in one place. And so our life comes out of his judgment. And so these are the three signs that God gives to Moses to perform. 
Next time we'll talk about Moses' pride and concern over eloquence. We're way over 15 minutes tonight. But uh, I want you to meditate on this. Does God use eloquent, powerful, sinless, obedient, perfect people? Or does he use sinners like you and me and like Moses? You know the answer. God can do anything with you as you submit yourself to him. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.